teaching us, of instructing us, of reminding us of certain things that are important for us to know. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 34. Um, this one, right in the middle of the psalm, it has a, has a verse, verse 11. It says, Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And I think that that's one of the main themes of this psalm, is that idea of teaching us something. There are actually two psalms that are very similar, um, that are often linked together. Psalm 34, which is this one, and Psalm 25, which is another of the psalms written by David. Uh, they're both by him. They're both very similar in their feel and in their content. Uh, they both use the Hebrew alphabet as a structure. But Psalm 25 focuses specifically on David and his personal relationship with God. But then we get to Psalm 34, and there's that very significant phrase, Come and I will teach you. And, and I think that he has a goal in mind of teaching certain things. And so as we dig into it, we're going to find out what is it that David wants to teach and who is he teaching and why is he teaching and what's, what's going on here. So we're going to dig into Psalm chapter 34 here in just a moment. I mentioned a little bit earlier, though, that I, I had a little bit of a struggle with um, technology this morning, right? Well, I had a, a set of slides, and we were going to do a review of what we've been studying, what we've looked at in the Psalms, and somehow my slides don't like me, and they didn't work. But that's not going to get you off the hook from a little bit of a pop quiz. Let's review together real quick. Where have we been in the Psalms so far? What have we studied? What, would, what have we found in the Psalms as we've been going through? Okay. We started off at the very beginning. I know it's, it's been a while. It's way back there. But Psalm chapter 1. And we found that there are two kinds of people. Right? Blessed is the man who does not walk after the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the way of sinners, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But instead, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. And Psalm 1 really establishes the entirety of the Psalms. What it's all about. It's about these two different people. And which one are you? Which one are you going to be? From there, we went to Psalm 119. And what's Psalm 119 about? The Word. The Law. It's all about the Word of God. And, and it's really easy to, to think of the Psalms as just songs that they sang. And, you know, you, you turn on the radio today and you're going to hear all kinds of different songs. Some of them good and some of them definitely not. Well, these Psalms, as we go through them, they're not just there for the sake of of having songs to sing or being entertaining or anything like that, we find from Psalm 119 that it's really focused on the Word of God. And then all of it is how do we examine and how do we deal with and how do we interact with the things that we find from God's Word. So Psalm 119 and Psalm 1 kind of started us off on this study through an overview of what the Psalms is all about. From there, we started looking at different types of psalms. I call them genres. And just like with food, there's all kinds of different styles and ways that we interact with and things like that. Um, and, and you can't always nail it down and specify exactly. But in general, 
we found that there were three types of psalms, or three genres. Anybody remember what those were? Okay, one of them was laments. How do we deal with our sorrow? You know, life is tough at times, but what do we do with that? How do we handle that? Well, the psalms address that. What was another one? Praises. Praises. Hymns. Hymns of praise, of, of who God is and what he's done. And, and we definitely ought to take time to do that as well. Were you raising your hand? No? Anybody remember the third genre, the third type of psalms? We already did laments. Laments and praise. There you go. Thanksgiving. There are times in which God comes through and deals with things. And we need to be thankful for him, for those things. And we need to praise him and give thanks. And we even study a little bit, give thanks in all things. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's challenging to thank God for the things that aren't so enjoyable. And yet, again, as we go through the Psalms, we are finding over and over again that that doesn't matter. Those, those trivial, situational, uh, feeling-type things don't really come into play. We still declare who God is. We praise Him for who He is. We thank Him for what He has done. And we go to Him when things aren't how we may want them to be or think that they ought to be. We still go to Him. Now, the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, themes or certain ideas or, or things that come through. And this week, we are looking at this idea of instruction. Um, we don't just learn the Bible for the sake of having big head knowledge. That's very tempting, particularly uh, if you go to Bible college or to seminary. It's really, really easy to get caught up in learning all the facts and the figures and, and having lots and lots of head knowledge. But that's not why we study God's Word. If we, if we just do it for that reason, then it causes us a lot of troubles, a lot of problems. We're going to learn a few things about uh, what David is trying to teach here in just a minute as we go through Psalm 34. But I want to encourage you to remember, when we learn the facts and the figures, we learn the, all of the stuff, it's not just to have a big head, but it's to make a big deal about who God is and what He has done. As I said when we started this series, I'm not going to be able to teach through all 150 of the Psalms. Instead, I want to give you a framework and some tools as you read through them and as you study them to dig in and to be able to be equipped to not only understand them, but really to fall in love with the Psalms. To recognize that they encompass the entirety of the human experience and the challenges that we face, the joys that we face, the emotions that we deal with, as well as the facts of how things are structured and what's going on. And so I want to encourage you to love the Psalms and to love the God that they declare. Ultimately, by the end of July, it is my intention to answer that question that I brought up all the way at the beginning, is what is worship? We're going to get to that eventually. Between now and then, um, I've got a couple more psalms. Uh, next week, we're going to be dealing with, I think someone mentioned, confession. We're going to look at, into that and dig into that a little bit. And then I have two guest speakers lined up, um, and they're going, to, they're going to present, probably not deal with the psalms, um, but they're going to present, and we'll study some other things from God's Word, and then continue our study of the book of Psalms, and like I said, hopefully be able to uh, bring it to a conclusion by the end of July. But as we begin our study today, in Psalm chapter 34, let's go ahead and read it and start digging in to find out what are we supposed to learn 
about who God is and what He's done. A Psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked to him and were radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. But they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their trouble. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. On its face, obviously, it's a great psalm. Declares, I will, I will praise God. I will bless Him. Declares different truths about Him. But as we start to dig into it, I think we need to to begin with that first little bit that's right at the beginning. And I've talked about this a few times in the past. You know, the, that part of the first verse that in English Bibles is oftentimes separated out and and maybe even in a smaller font is there as part of verse one. In fact, depending on which uh, Bible you're looking at, which version, sometimes in the Hebrew is actually the first verse, and then it throws off our numbering system, and, and verse 2 in Hebrew is verse 1, but that's okay. The point is, that's part of what's going on with this. And so this one is a little bit unusual, it's a little bit different, because it tells us exactly what situation was going on that brought David to write this psalm. It says, a psalm of David, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. Now, if, if you took the pre-study, I don't want you to answer this yet. But who knows what situation is going on with that? Anybody, anybody else? Who's Abimelech? What's, what's going on there? Well, when, when you come to Scripture, when you pre-read, I, I heard a few people start talking. That's okay. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you didn't answer it, just... When you come to Scripture and you see some of those things, it's a good idea to start digging in. Trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? Why, why is he saying that? What's this name? Well, we'll start off with just that name. Abimelech is uh, it's two Hebrew words kind of put together. One is Abba, which you may be familiar with. Abba means father, right? 
uh, Malik is the Hebrew word for king. And so the, the idea is it's a, di- uh, a dynasty title of the father of kings, or my king was the father, uh, depending on, on how you phrase it, how it's used. But, but the idea is it's much like Pharaoh. You guys remember Pharaoh, right? That wasn't just one person. Throughout the Old Testament, you see multiple Pharaohs because that was the title of that king. Well, this is the title of a group of kings in the area. So you're actually going to find that word several times throughout the Old Testament, and it's referring to a king. It's a, it's a uh, dynastic title that's used. Um, based on what it says about the, the event, though, we find that this comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. So we're going to turn there real quick. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, uh, the event that is specified comes in verses 10 through 15. But I don't want to just stop with that because it's kind of jumping in the middle of the story and just seeing a, a bare snippet of what's going on. So who, who remembers what's happening in 1 Samuel? I know it's a very broad and very difficult question, but anybody remember anything from 1 Samuel? Saul is pursuing David, right? That's the main context of where we're at. We're going to back up just a little bit before that. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, and I'm I'm just doing a real quick overview, but in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God selects David as the next king. But there's still a king in place. The king in place is Saul, but God says, back in 15, God says, Saul, you're not going to be king anymore, and your sons are not going to be king. In, verse, in chapter 16, God picks David to be the next king. Well, that could create some problems. Just maybe. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, we have the, the great example and the great story of David and Goliath. It's a well-known kid story, and yet it plays a huge role in what goes on in this. So don't, don't just skim over and say, oh, well, that, that's a children's story. No, it's not. It's a major account of of how God's operating and how David is going to follow God and and his relationship and different things with that. Well, in chapter 18, Saul becomes jealous because everybody is looking at David as this great conqueror who defeated uh, the giant Goliath. And they're, they're starting to think that he's really cool. And Saul's like, wait a minute, why aren't you praising me? I mean, I'm the cool guy. I'm the king. And so uh, Saul becomes jealous and he tries to kill David twice. But David becomes friends with Saul's son, Jonathan, and they develop a very, very close relationship. They are best friends in essence. They're very, very close. And that that plays a theme through what happens following on. Uh, Also in chapter 18, David ends up marrying one of Saul's daughters uh, after Saul sends him on a hopeless mission and is probably going to get him killed. He actually survives and he marries one of Saul's daughters. So in chapter 19, there's an on-again, off-again relationship. Uh, Things are maybe going to be okay. Oh, wait, no. Saul still wants to kill David and tries three times, even to the point of going after him himself. And David runs away, tries to escape. Well, chapter 20, Jonathan helps David escape. Wait a minute. The son of the king has now helped the king's enemy get away. Saul doesn't like that very much and actually curses uh, his son and even tries to kill Jonathan. We get to chapter 21 and David is on the run. He's trying to make his escape and we have a really interesting account of what happens. He runs into a priest 
and asks the priest for some help, and the priest does help him out. And that, that account is actually referenced in the New Testament as well. We're not going to dig into it a whole lot, but it does come up again. And then we have the situation that came about here. Uh, I'm going to pick it up in verse 10 of chapter 21. I'm actually going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 22 as well. In 1 Samuel 21, verse 10, David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, is, not this, is this not David the king of the land? Did they not sing this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? And David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So he disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented, gathered to him. And he became captain of them. Now there were about 400 men with him. This creates the setting in which David expresses what we're going to find in Psalm chapter 34. He's been running. He's been attacked. Saul, the king, has tried to kill him. All because David did what God wanted him to. That sounds kind of tough. I, I could imagine uh, David's feelings, David's emotions in these situations. It's, it's a hard, difficult, challenging place that he's in. And, and he ends up here in the, the king of Gath in, in his presence, and he acts like he's insane. And he ends up being thrown out of that area. Now, this king actually comes up several other times, and there's a lot that goes on with this. But David doesn't find a good place to hide and hang out until we get to chapter 22, and it's in a cave. And then all of these other people start coming. These people who are, are downtrodden, are in distress, who are in debt, who are having all kinds of problems, and they all come to him. And I think that that is the setting and the, the people, when, when it refers in uh, Psalm 34 to these children, I think it's these 400 people that have come to him, and he's wanting to teach them something. And so he writes this psalm to teach them and to help them understand certain things. And that's the setting in which David presents this psalm. With that backdrop, how does David start? Now, personally, if I were going through a situation like that, I could very easily see me saying, woe is me, everything's so hard. But what does David do? What does it say? I will bless the Lord at all times. So if David is trying to teach these downtrodden, these who are in debt, these who are, are not doing well, if, he's, if he is actually trying to teach them something, what is the first thing that he wants to teach them? That no matter the situation, no matter the circumstances, no matter 
maybe even, and, and I'll admit, sometimes I, I may read my own mind into some things, and I have to be very, very careful about that. I would encourage you also, be, be careful when you're trying to understand the mind of David as he's, as he's writing these things. He does not think the same way that I think, or that you might think. But I could definitely understand if that was his mindset. But it's not. That's not how he's thinking. That's not the first thing that comes out of his mouth. The things that would come out of my mouth are not what he says. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. That's a high, high standard, a high challenge for us. If we're mistreated, if we're running, and, 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 you know, it's really easy to look at the world around us and think to myself, oh man, America could be going this way. I'm not going to go there necessarily, but think about whatever the issue, whatever the challenge, David's being pursued because he's doing what God wants him to do. And his first response through all of this is, I will bless the Lord. His praise will continually be in my mouth. Verse 2, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. Now that's that's way more than just, um, I'm going to say nice things. But like his boasting His focus, his intensity is all about God and not these challenges, not these problems, not these difficulties, not these attacks that are coming against him, not woe is me, but I'm going to praise God. The humble shall hear it and rejoice. That's where we get to the difference that it makes. I I started off mentioning, you know, we don't just study things to learn things to get ourselves a big head about it. What difference does it make when his attitude, when, when all of who he is and all of what he does is praise God, bless him, boast in him, what result does that have? The humble, that's those 400 that are hanging out in a cave with him, the downtrodden, the depressed, the, the ones who are in turmoil and difficulties, they shall hear it and rejoice. And then verse 3, he issues them a, an invitation. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You know, in in reality, the psalm could probably end there. And that's enough for us to to just think on and ponder and recognize, you know, when I'm dealing with difficult things and going through all kinds of challenges and and being persecuted and and things are not going well. and, And honestly, if you think about it, we are not dealing with anything near what David's been dealing with. No one has tried to throw a spear and and stab me to the wall yet that I know of. Uh, I've not been chased out of my country because I took a stand for who God was and was just trying to do what he wanted me to, at least as of yet. But David's response is, I'm going to praise the Lord. I'm going to bless him. I'm going to sing praises to his name. And more than that, I'm going to teach others to do the same. See, that's really what's happening here. He's he's not just saying, I'm going to do this, but he invites others, in verse 3, to join him, to take part in boasting about God. These guys who have nothing of themselves to boast in ought to be boasting about God. But David, who's been selected as king, who's going to be the next ruler, who God has promised, hey, I'm going to lead you and take care of you and do these things, his boast, his focus, his reason for saying these is because of who God is. And therefore, his goal is to magnify. Well, magnify, that the idea there is to make big, to let it be known. To magnify and to exalt. Exalt is lift up. 
again, to make him known. His focus is not on himself. His focus is not on his kingdom. His focus is not on his problems. His focus is on both he, David, as well as getting all of these others to praise God, to lift up God, to make big who God is. So how is he going to do that? What, what way is he going to lift up God or make him big? See, even in the midst of all this running and all this challenge, he confidently asserts his faith in God's deliverance. Let's read in verse 4. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. They looked to Him and were radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and rescues them. This hasn't happened yet. And yet, David is declaring it as if it was already done. Because he has a confidence. He has a trust. He has his, his boast in who God is. David recognizes that God is able, and God will do what he said he would do. So even in the midst of the running, even in the midst of all of the challenges that he's been facing, he trusts God for his deliverance. Now, as, as you're reading through this, you'll see there's, there's two words in English of fear. Fear comes up twice. And I think that it's, it's worth digging into those because they're not the same word. They actually aren't dealing with the same thing. Um, the first one comes in verse 4. He says, he delivers me from all my fears. That, that word there is terror. Uh, the things that he's running from. All of these challenges. My guess is Saul. Saul is trying to kill him, and that's, that would be terrifying. That would be scary. And yet, David declares that God delivers him from all of those things that, that give him terror. But then we, we get down in verse 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who fear God. This is a different kind of fear. This is the kind of fear that we find in Proverbs when it says, uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. This is, we will often refer to it as the idea of reverential awe or a recognition that God is almighty and powerful and amazing and beyond our understanding, beyond anything. And as a result, we ought to fear Him. And, and fear is the right word there. Some, some commentators and people will try and say, well, you know, you shouldn't call it that. You should call it. No, we ought to be in fear of God. But it's a different kind of fear. It's not that, that terror that he had from that he was going to get killed, but an awe and a reverence and a recognition of the power and the might and the awesomeness of God. That's the kind of fear. It's a reasonable one. It's actually still a required one that we ought to have towards God. But verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. David has been dealing with all kinds of challenges and problems, and people are coming after him, trying to kill him. And yet, he uses this military theme to say, you know what, there's a, a much more mighty, much more powerful army that encamps around, that protects us, that will take care of those who fear God. Then we get down to verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now, I don't know about you, but I have heard a lot of that verse taken out of context. I'm, I'm seeing a couple of heads nod. You ever heard that one? Like, oh, oh come on, just, just 
try Jesus. It'll be okay. Just, just give him a try, and, and you'll see that it's, it's really, really good. Try it out, and that is not what's going on here. Not at all. And, and if you've not heard that good, uh, you shouldn't. It, it's a misuse and a misapplication of this verse. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. When I've, when I've heard it, and, and I get in my head this idea that someone's trying to peddle a drug. Be like, oh, just, just give it a try, and you'll love it, and you'll always want to go back to it. That's not what's happening here. What is the context? What is happening? David's hiding out in a cave. He's on the run. His life has been continuously threatened since, what, seven chapters that I referenced? I didn't read all of uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, but do you remember that priest that showed up in chapter 21 that helped him out? Do you guys know what happened with him? He was executed. He was killed. Saul heard about it, went out and killed him. And not just him, but his family and his kids. And they were in the town of Nob. And I believe it was Nob. Yeah, the, the city of Nob, which was a city of priests. They wiped out all the women and the children and the men and the, let me read it for you, men, women, and the children, the infants, the oxen, the donkeys, the sheep, all of them he struck with the edge of the sword. David goes in and wipes out everything. I don't know if David heard about that or not, but we have it recorded to find out that that's what's happening. So this idea of taste and see is not an emotional, good-feeling positive thing that's happening. No matter what our circumstances, though, he says, taste and see, the Lord is good. You know, sometimes we get into things that we look at as not good, as very bad, as very difficult and challenging and heartbreaking and hard, and running across country and trying to escape from being murdered and, and seeing, potentially seeing that someone who helped you has been murdered, and not just him, but that entire community, that would be really hard to say positive things. And yet, David confidently asserts this idea that God is good. I started off this morning with that song, God is so good. Why do we declare him to be good? Why? Can we look at the world around us and see so much evil and pain and suffering? How could a good, loving God do those things? These are the questions that you run into in life. These may be the questions that you ask yourself. Maybe these 400 people were asking themselves, what is good? Well, David doesn't end it there. So we shouldn't either. Let's keep reading. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For to those who fear Him, there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. I don't know, it doesn't explain to us fully what all provisions they might have had, but I could understand this idea that they don't have very much. And in fact, that's why he went to the priest at Nam to get help because they didn't have food. And the priest gave them some food and the priest ended up being executed because of that. But he even references this idea of the young lions, the most strong, mighty, powerful hunters. You would think that they always have stuff, but no, 
They lack, but those who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Over and over and over again, David is declaring his reliance, his faith, his trust in who God is. With all the bad stuff going on, with all the challenges that's happening, he is declaring how blessed, how happy is the individual who trusts God, who follows Him, who fears Him, who seeks after Him. And then we get to verse 11. Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. You want to be blessed? You want to be happy? You want to be cared for? You want to to be in a refuge? You want to not have these, these issues and challenges and problems? Now, wait a minute. They're in the middle of issues and challenges and problems. How is it that David could be declaring this? What, what is his focus? What is he looking at? What is he dealing with? Come, you children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? You know, David's been tried to be executed multiple times. That doesn't sound like long life. And yet, he who wants those things, what does it take? Verse 13. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. What does David want to teach? What does David encourage them in? Not, oh, don't worry. Health, wealth, and prosperity. We trust God. We're going to have nice lives and everything will be fine. We won't be attacked. We won't have any kind of troubles. None of that is coming out in this. What is he saying? He's saying my refuge, my protection, my defense, my rescue, all of that comes when I trust God, when I fear Him, when I follow Him. How do I do that? What does it take to fear the Lord? What does it take to be that? Those two verses. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from speaking speaking deceit, depart from evil, do good. Sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? James chapter 3 says that the tongue is unruly and hard to tame. No one can do it. James 3 also talks about the test of wisdom and understanding, and that's how we behave. These ideas keep coming up over and over again through Scripture. In fact, one of my favorite verses, we'll, we'll get to it here in a little bit, but one of my favorite verses addresses very much the same idea. What does God want? What does God expect? What is it to fear God, to follow Him, to serve Him, to watch your tongue, to watch what you do? That, that's really what it is. Watch what you say and watch what you do. Your actions and your words. But then there's one more thing that he, he focuses in on. It says, seek peace and pursue it. Now, that word came up last week. I mentioned it briefly, but I don't, I don't feel like I really did it justice when I, when I tried to define what is shalom, what is peace, what is, what is he talking about here. The idea is completeness or soundness. It's to seek after, to desire, to look for the welfare and the peace and the comfort the tranquility. It also deals with contentment and friendship. What is it to see that, to, to go after it, to pursue it? Well, I think we kind of get an answer in the next couple of verses. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His eyes are open to, uh, to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers, to cut them off, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What is God's attention and focus? That's, that's what's going on here. 
we see these, these references, and, and it is poetic. Um, he's not trying to say that God has ears and eyes like we have and things of that nature. But the, the idea is that God's focus, God's attention, God looks at the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, or toward the righteous, and his ears are open to the cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers. So David, in all of this stuff that's been going on, and all that he has seen happening, he still has this confident assertion that God's attention, God's focus, is on his people, is on the righteous, is on the ones who do what he just said. Keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from speaking deceit, depart from evil, and do good. God's focus and attention is on those. He hears. He will cut off the memory of the evildoer. He will deliver the righteous. He is near by, and he saves. That's what verse 18 is. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. David doesn't sugarcoat the challenge that they're facing. He, he recognizes that in verse 19 that there are many afflictions. The, uh, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. David doesn't try and make it sound like, oh, don't worry, it's, it's all going to be fine. We'll, we'll come out of this on the other end and it'll be great and happy. That's not what he's trying to teach. That's not what his focus is. I, I mentioned before, it's not this health, wealth, and prosperity type idea. It's not this ooey, gooey, comforty, feel nice type of idea. But what is David trying to teach? What is he declaring over and over and over again? What is he emphasizing throughout all of this? God is near. God hears. He knows what's going on. Let's read the last couple of verses. What's he going to do about it? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Again, we see this idea of two people, two individuals. One who is condemned, one who isn't condemned. Why? What makes the difference? What, what determines that? It's not our feelings, it's not our comfort, it's not whether you're on the run, trying to get away from somebody trying to kill you, or anything else. What is it? It says the evil will slay the wicked. Those who don't do what God wants them to. Those who go contrary to God's ways. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. And none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So what is David trying to teach? If not health, wealth, and prosperity, if not this idea of taste and see, oh, God is so sweet and makes life all bubbly and wonderful, that's not what he's trying to say. Instead, he's saying align yourself with God. Line up with what God wants. Do what God expects. Live that righteous life. Even through difficulties, even through challenges, even through all of that bad stuff, align yourself with God, what He says, what He desires, what God desires for us. Seek peace and pursue it. Go after that. Do all that you can in regard, in that regard as righteous individuals. Trust the ultimate goodness of God. And He will handle the rest. He will take care of those things that, that come up. He will condemn those who need to be condemned. And he will not condemn the righteous. I tell my kids frequently, 
and unfortunately, sometimes I have to be reminded, you do what you are responsible for. You kids remember hearing that? Yeah? You've heard that at time or 12. You do what you're responsible for. Let the authority take care of the rest. The ultimate authority is God. And He will. He will take care of the rest. This we know and can experience. We can taste it and see that God is good despite our circumstances. I mentioned that one of my favorite verses kind of lines up with this, and I'll finish with it. In Ecclesiastes, the end of the book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. I'm, I'm frequently reminded of this, and I want to encourage you with it, kind of the so what. What do, we, what do we take away from an understanding of this? See, Ecclesiastes was written by David's son. David went through all of those challenges, all of those difficulties. He survived. God brought him through it. God is the one who delivered him. God is the one who saved him. God is the one who took care of them through all of that. We didn't keep reading in 1 Samuel, but we find out a lot of his mighty men and the ones who followed him and the ones that God was able to use to, to do a lot of neat stuff in that kingdom and to establish the golden era of Israel. Well, David had a son, whose name was Solomon, who became the next king. And he writes Ecclesiastes. And he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring you every act into judgment and every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The same idea that David was teaching to these men is the same one that his son proclaims here. Fear God, keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Yes, bad things happen. Yes, challenging things happen. Yes, evil will try to come after. But taste and see, the Lord is good. We can declare the goodness of God regardless of our circumstances, regardless of the problems that we have. What are we to do to be that righteous man? To watch our words, to watch our actions, to align ourselves with God and do what He wants us to, not our own things. We've been going through the book of Psalms. There's all kinds of things that come up. But one of the ideas that I want you to notice from this is that it's not just declarative, saying cool things. It is that. It's more than that. There's an expectation of how do we live. What are we to learn from it? It's not just to get a big head so we know lots and lots of facts and information. It should change how we act, who we are. So, do you watch your mouth and watch your actions? Do you align yourself with God? Do you do what God expects? Do you fear Him? Or are you like the wicked? That's the question that is brought up over and over through the Psalms. Blessed is the man who does not walk, who does not stand, who does not sit. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, help us to be that kind of person. Lord, we fail so often. I don't like doing it. 
who you are. He worships you. He invites others to do the same. Lord, help us not to be distracted by the things around us. And there are all kinds of difficulties, all kinds of problems. Lord, help our first response to be the same as we saw in Psalm 34. To praise you, to bless you, to invite others to do the same. To teach others who you are and what you've done. Thank you, Lord, for all that you do, even the challenging things. May they push us back to you and draw us to you that we can follow you better. Thank you, Father, for your word. May we be people of your word. That we would love it, cherish it, study it, make it a part of all that we do. Help us to trust you to handle the rest. Help us to be.